Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. My guest today is Gary Jacobs. He's a fellow member of the International Club of Rome, the president of the World Academy of Art and Science, and CEO of the World University Consortium. He is an American-born transdisciplinary thinker, author, and researcher who has lived in Pondicherry, India for many decades. He was widely influenced by Sri Aurobindo and his integral philosophy of consciousness evolution, which Gary applies to business management, social development, and psychology. Gary Jacobs, thank you so much for participating in the Club of Rome Thinking uh, Finance Hub. So the purpose of this uh, high-level consultation is to take a transdisciplinary approach to where changing finance and financing change and to capture the ideas of some of the brightest minds in the world to implement the 10 steps of the planetary emergency plan that was outlined by the Club of Rome. And so the idea is to give some of the brightest minds in the world the opportunity and the time and the bandwidth to really express their ideas as to how we can contribute to rethinking finance in more than the traditional three to five minutes uh, uh, time frame. So from your perspective, how can we jumpstart the economy particularly and finance, particularly after the COVID-19 crisis that uh, I personally view as a dress rehearsal for what's to come? Well, thank you, Marianne. It's great to be here and I, I love to participate in Club of Rome activities and this is a very important time and a very important opportunity and, and very important question that you're asking. Uh, I think the first thing I would say is most important thing or first thing we need to do is not uh, repeat the, the mistakes that we've made in the past. Uh, and I'm particularly thinking, though there are many, I'm particularly thinking of 2008. Uh, because at that time when we had a real financial crisis, the first thing we did is reinforce behaviors that only strengthened and fortified that which needed to change. And therefore, even the legislation, I'm talking about the U.S. because I was more centered there in what was going on, and that was the, the cause of the whole thing. Uh, instead of addressing the root causes, we went and patched things up and, and enabled the financial industry to not only survive, and, but revive and go back to the very practices that had been the cause of the crisis in the first place. And uh, we threw so much, so many trillions of dollars at it only to reinforce something where we had a perfect opportunity to change. Politically, it was very difficult to make that transition at that time. And the urgency, shock and urgency of it uh, compounded that. But we must be a little wiser now. <laughs> We've seen that we actually are come back full circle to the very problems that aggravated it uh, uh, earlier. And uh, we've got to be thinking and acting differently and I think the pandemic only reinforces the fact that uh, we need something new rather than going back and therefore, and we need something much deeper and more profound. So that's my first comment. We're, we're gonna do quantitative easing or whatever you wanna call it, quantitative easing that put more money back into the banks so that they could invest more money for speculation and leave the household, the homeowners in, you know, in, in, in 2008, high and dry, and a lot of them losing their homes uh, and everything, is just the wrong way to do it. The financial system, the way it works today, is not really geared up uh, for the society we have. So this is the time to change it, when we have the pressure, the necessity, and I think the opportunity, because the population is aware that something fundamental needs to change. Right. So can you give us the insight as to, from your perspective, what should be those changes in a short, medium, and long term from a financial perspective? 
Well, I think the, the first thing, because a lot of money is going to be thrown uh, at the economy, is being thrown already uh, in the trillions of dollars around the world, I think the first thing to do is uh, we've got to look at where we're throwing it and who we're throwing it to uh, and what we're throwing it for. Uh, and uh, this is a, a, an idea that's already been discussed amply within the Club of Rome. Uh, if we're doing quantitative easing or a new deal, it's got to be agreed. This is the time to put the money where we need it for the future. We need trillions of dollars of investment every, every year in renewable resources, renewable energy, and other forms of uh, energy efficiency and other things. So I'd say the number one first thing short term we can do is be sure that the money's being injected is not just going to the banks. It's not just... Uh, uh, it's not just creating liquidity so that the stock market goes up. It's going into real investments that create real jobs and real uh, uh, incomes in the economy, but do so in a sustainable way, rather than reinforcing, going back to creating jobs in the coal industry or more in the fossil fuels. So I would say that's the first thing, short term. So in order to make that happen, you need uh, political will, you need legisla legislative uh, decisions. How do you think that will occur given the current system? Because obviously, currently, we're operating under the wrong legislation and political intentions. From your perspective, what needs to happen in order to shift from a traditional economic model to what you call the Green Deal model? Well, it's, and it's, uh, to me, it's much more than just the Green Deal, but the Green Deal is a nice way to yeah. a, a very good, wonderful, conceptually clear starting point for that. And of course, you're asking the $64,000 question uh, right up front, uh, because in fact, all of the changes we need to make whether they're in the industry, whether in the finance or in the way our politics are being run, uh, the role of money in society or running money in politics and all, all come down to the, the same issue as to how do you affect uh, fundamental change where there are vested interests. There are vested interests in fossil fuel and coal. There are vested interests in, uh, especially in, uh, in the US, in my country or in India where I am speaking from now, vested interest in the money in politics, which really is, uh, we don't have democracy, we've got a plutocracy. How do you make fundamental changes like that? And I think that uh, that's an issue that I have been very concerned with and working on uh, for a long time, and there's no simple answer. But I don't think there's any alternative, but a demand from the society. It's got to come as a demand from the society, not uh, what we're going to convince a few politicians to do. I'm thinking, for example, I'm a, uh, I was uh, reaching adulthood in the 60s in California when we first saw the impact of the environmental uh, problems with pollution in Los Angeles, and then it, it spread to so many other things. And I think it's some people forget the environmental movement wasn't started by government. It was started by people at the community level uh, in the cities and other uh, who really realized that this is ruining our life, our way of life. And it, it spread first in California and then it spread around the country and eventually, and it picked up and resonated with efforts that were going on in other places as well. But the legislation came later. The legislation came after the communities started demand, we have to make a change. Now that's difficult. You know, it's difficult because we don't really know. I don't, I mean, it's not that we don't know anything about, we don't really have a science for social transformation. We know how things have happened after they've happened. We can tell the story, write the books, give the timelines, but what really builds the social attitudes and social pressure and releases the social energy and awareness for change is not a process that is intellectually or academically uh, really well known and, and something that's important. So I think that you, we started off by your mentioning the 
COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it, it serves one critical uh, uh, thing here, which climate has not been able to do in spite of all the efforts of Club of Rome and Gore and so many dedicated people around the world. We've not been able to create that sense of urgency. The pandemic has created a real sense of urgency. And that urgency creates an awareness, it, cre it releases an energy, it, 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 it creates an expectation for a change. Now the question is, are we gonna use that urgency to reinforce the past, or are we gonna use it to compel a change and pressurize change for the future? And I think that that has to come from a widespread social movement, but that's not enough. The, the other thing that's really lacking, uh, Green New Deal as an exception, but still is, you know, we don't have a vision of a better model. We don't have a vision of how the world could be. We know that the world could be cooler in 30 years if we do something different, but is that gonna be cooler, but with a lot fewer jobs or a lot less incomes? I think what we really need now, and it's a role for organizations like the Club of Rome, to really work out models to show that there's a better alternative, that this, this uh, competitive uh, shareholder first, uh, country against country, zero sum game is simply not the path to uh, human well being in the future. And I think it can be quantified just like the original Club of Rome report quantified and predicted what would be the impact on resources if we continue on a GDP uh, uh, first uh, perspective. And what happens if we really want to maximize human well-being rather than uh, maximizing GDP? A very large portion of it going in other directions which don't benefit human, human beings, people at all. Uh, uh, so this is another dimension of it. That is, we need the energy and the pressure. We've got that. But do we have an alternative that's, we have an alternative short term, and that's what you're we're talking about, a Green New Deal, about a green quantitative easing that will use the money and take in a new direction. Great. But that's only a first step. What's going to happen to jobs? What's going to happen to human security? What's going to happen to well-being? Personally, I believe that we can have a much, much better, more prosperous society, not the society that has to settle for whatever we have now. Living in India, I know it's going to be pretty hard to convince 1.3 billion people that they should stop now where they are and be satisfied uh, when the rest of the world is, is so far ahead but I don't think that's even necessary or advisable either. The, the potential for, let me put it this way. If you look at the world today, we have all the resources we need. We have, I'm, I believe we have all the resources we need to dramatically improve the well-being of, of, of people all over the world, including those who are already at a high level of standard of living. We've got all the money. Money is not in short supply. The problem is that the money is not going in, into reinvestments in well-being. Uh, and I would argue that somewhere between 80 and 85% of the, the global financial resources are money chasing other money and trying to make money rather than money being invested in the real economy to create jobs and incomes and well-being for people. So money's not in short supply. It's the way the money's being used and the incentives uh, for the way it's being used. So I think if we can come up with, and I do believe it's possible, I've done work like this in, at the India level. India is small compared to the world. But when you try to create, think of how you could create 100 million jobs in 10 years, it's a, US took a century to create 100 million jobs. And we showed that it was possible to do that. I think that's the kind of effort we need uh, in Europe and elsewhere as well to really show we can create gainful, sustainable, remunerative employment, not by the way we've been doing it, not in the energy intensive, capital intensive way, 
We need a lot more, especially in, in places like Europe. We need a lot more investment in education, in healthcare, in, in services of all descriptions to improve the quality of life, not just to improve the quantity of things we have. So I think that's a piece, and I hope that the, uh, uh, the club will work on it. Uh, another element of this is, and I, I, I went out, say, I started by saying, I think we have the money that's necessary. But the way we, the money we have now, uh, not only the system is not working in a way conducive, we have a paradox. Surplus of resources, but, uh, but need, unmet needs, because the resources are not being applied systematically. So I think we really should think at this time about uh, uh, complementary monetary systems, whether at the local level or the national level, or even uh, at the global level. Uh, and some of our colleagues in Club of Rome and, uh, uh, and World Academy of Art and Science are already working on things. I've been studying this for like 30 years, and fundamentally, it's a very sound uh, principle. Uh, it has already been proven at the local level, but uh, this monetary system big, where all the money is being created by banks and being channeled through banks, mostly to other banks, uh, or to channeled overseas wherever you can get the best return on investment. And incidentally, it has a big impact on uh, regional disparities and inequalities within countries. You know, when in the 19th century, there were 6,000 banks in the United States. 6,000 independent banks. I'm not talking about their branches, the banks themselves. And typically, a bank was centered in a community. They were community-level banks. The biggest of them would be district-level or county-level or state-level banks. But in fact, up until uh, the 90s, uh, banks could only be incorporated in one state. Uh, even Citibank and Bank of America, they were the two biggest banks in the world, but Citibank was, only could take deposits in New York and Bank of America in California. Uh, and now that's all been dismantled. The result is we've got these banks now, global chains of banks, taking money out of the local communities and transferring it either to the metropolitan areas where they can put it in the financial market or out overseas buying bonds or whatever they do internationally. So the money that's generated in the community is being drained from the community and going elsewhere rather than being turned back into the community to promote uh, production, uh, uh, consumption, uh, and living standards. So fundamentally, this model, and the bigger we get, the more we get out of touch, the more we're draining the resources and drying up the communities for which were originally the source of our prosperity and taking it somewhere else in the world. Now, it, it, being in India, you know, there's some advantage to having the money from the rest of the world coming over here looking because the opportunities for development are, are high, the interest rates are a lot higher and all. But what are we doing to the communities from which it comes? What is our strategy for rejuvenating and building those communities? Part of the reason that uh, the, the world population is already 50% in the cities and it's going to be, it's more and more that way is because that's the only place you really get the quality of life today, if you can call that quality. At least you get the intensity of life. So I think fundamentally money, I'm glad that we're focusing in the club on the financial issue because it's connected to everything. Money is not just a, a means for production or a store of value uh, or, uh, uh, or uh, like that. That's only the pure economic function of money. Money is a, a store of power in the society. I don't mean just the power uh, to push people around and get what you want. I mean the power to accomplish things. Money gives us power to educate the population. It gives us power to improve the health care. It gives us power for transport and communication and everything else. And these, this money can flow back from anything to anything else. If you've got money, you get political power. 
if you get political power, you can convert it into money, if not for yourself, for your friend or somebody else who's going to uh, support you and elect you again. And I think we have to start using this power for what it's meant. Money is meant for the, it's, it's meant for the society's benefit, just like business. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to get off your subject, but the idea that a company, that the purpose of a company, this idiotic idea that the purpose of a company is only to maximize shareholder value is so primitive. And now finally, after how many decades, World Economic Forum uh, and others are waking up and saying, no, no, it's not shareholder value, it's stakeholder value, as if, as if this is a new idea. My, companies were always a part of the community. They provided the services and the goods that the community needed. They created employment for the community. They, they donated, they gave, they helped build the community. And the idea that anything exists only for itself is a complete contradiction of the reality uh, in the world. The idea that economy is all about competition. Today, we thrive much more on cooperation than we do on competition, but we've got an ideology that's a few centuries behind, and people are making decisions on that basis. And we see what happened when Trump uh, uh, decided that the America first and China uh, last. <laughs> and what happened? It put the whole, when the economy was at full employment, when everything was going well, suddenly he decided to pick a fight and reinvent notions that were discredited 50 or 100, I'd say it discredited in the New Deal in the 1930s, when we tried to humanize capital, capitalism and, and really look at what its impact on people. Uh, so we've got to get our thinking straight. And I, there's a lot of good thinking being done in the, in the club about the need to look at the theory of economics. Does economics live independently of everything else? Is it really a separate science? Or isn't it part of a science of the society in which the economic, the political, the social, the cultural dimensions, the ecological dimensions are one reality? We don't live in five worlds. We live in only one. And all of these factors are integrated. And we need a conceptual framework that brings out that integrality that's based on the reality that there's only one of us, there's only one world, and, and it, all things have to work together. You can't just take one goal and call that's the purpose of anything, uh, because it, it doesn't survive without everything else. Uh, I think another, this leads, so we need a change in thinking, and we need a change, a fundamental change in theory in the social sciences, and a, the club has been working on it's that. We have been working on it in the, the World Academy of Art and Science as well. Uh, and that I didn't mention first because you rightly said, what's the short term uh, thing we're going to do? And this is something that's going to take time. But without change, without challenging the ideas, without challenging the theory of what we call science, it's not science, it's a dogma. It's a dogma just like the dogma behind the Iron Curtain up until 1990. You know, this is the truth, established truth. Uh, and we have to challenge it. It's really critical. And in between the reality in the economy and the dogma in the academia uh, is education. And unfortunately, we're, we're educating our youth today for a world that I don't think it ever existed, but it certainly doesn't exist anymore. We're giving them ideas. We're equipping them with concepts and tools that simply are completely out of align with the reality of the society we live in, and most importantly, of the future of the society we live in, which is changing so quickly. And we're still debating concepts that were out of date decades ago. So that brings me, uh, not short, that brings me to what's a really critical thing, and that is education. And how do we recreate the education? And there's, that's a big topic in itself. Uh, but I just mentioned one thing now. Uh, we've, our educational system, it's a, it's, it's, it's a product of the 19th century industrial revolution when we wanted to create people to fill specific jobs. And 
today the diversity of jobs we need and the diversity of knowledge we need is so broad uh, that you simply can't be rubber stamping or, in, or cookie cutter mold people to fit into jobs, especially when each of them is a specialist. What we need are people who understand society. And I have talked with a lot of uh, uh, academics in different fields, for example, in, uh, in computer sciences, for example, where the education even today, we've worked with IEEE, for example, on their cognitive computing and on, on their systems, where even today, uh, as an exception to you, who are not only technically competent and uh, well experienced and educated, but also on psychology you've studied and, gone and, and understand the human side of it. But our education today is still producing technology people, engineers, who only understand the system, only understand the mechanism, not the impact it has on the society or on other people. How do we expect to evolve the systems we need to the, the knowledge and the systems we need for the future, for the well-being of society, when we've specialized this so much that they're not even studying the impact uh, on the society of what they do. It's technology for its own sake, just like it's shareholder value uh, for its own sake, or it's uh, uh, the finance, the stock market for its own sake. It's really funny when unemployment is going up and the papers are still reporting stock market is doing well. <laughs> stock market's doing well, but per capita income in the lower two thirds of the population is flat for 30 years. What do you mean by well? <laughs> it means a few people uh, are, are getting something and less and less is going to the rest. So I guess I'm, what I'm saying is that Short term, we have to take advantage of uh, the pandemic. We have to uh, redirect the money that is, there's a sanction to spend money, but let's not throw it away or, or, or let's put it into what can really build us to a better future. But that's not gonna be enough. We've gotta have a vision of where that future goes. If the energy's there and the awareness is goes there, but we still don't have the clarity of what's the alternative. That's the problem. We don't have a clarity of, I don't mean the alternative policies that we know, but what's the result? What will be the result of those policies? Where will we be if we really implement an alternative system? And we don't have enough consensus on the theoretical foundation. And we're still training people and educating them for the for this system that's out of date. So I'm trying to put it all together, looking short-term, uh, medium, and long-term. I'd, I'd like to mention another point, but unless you want to stop for a question, uh, but because you, you went to a core issue, uh, you jumped from uh, what should be done short-term to how are you going to build the political will. And that's why I, uh, because building that political will, at least I don't know, I think the COVID-19 has helped to build some political will, but that won't, it, it's created an opportunity for it. But unless we give a really viable alternative, uh, it's, uh, the, it's, it's not enough we convince some people in government. There's too much power driving the government to work in the way it works today. There are too many vested interests driving it. So the kind of work you do, for example, with investors, uh, in uh, educating investors to understand uh, that where they put their money and where the pension funds put their money uh, is determining the future of the world. Uh, th this is to change uh, not, the, uh, not the money managers who are doing the trading in the hedge funds and everything, but the people whose money they're trading. And I don't think there's any alternative to that. We have to educate the public. We have to make everyone understand that we are contributing to the system we have. Uh, and that's, I don't know, that's what we're working on now, as you know, with the United Nations, when we talk about how do we create the leadership in the 21st century, this is not an easy task. It's talking about conscious social evolution or conscious social transformation instead of the unconscious slow 
evolution that we've had in the past. We can't afford to go slowly. We can't afford uh, uh, to wait until people catch on. We're going to have to learn how to change faster. Uh, and we've got some great models for that in different areas. In all different areas, we've got successful models that show us, but we've not learned it as a, as a codified knowledge that, we can, that we're applying systematically. For example, the ban on the landmines, which Jody Williams got uh, and the, the institution got the Nobel Peace Prize for, I think around 95, uh, in five years, they put together a program which nobody believed was possible to get the countries of the world to sign on to ban and eliminate the production, the use uh, of, of this disastrous weapon, which targets civilians, doesn't, uh, you know, more than anything else. But they did it. And the way they did it was not by starting with the governments. They started with civil society. They started with the publics that had been affected by it and built up the public awareness, and it was the pressure of those publics. That's why I was trying to say what happened with the uh, environmental movement. That's how it started. It was the pressure of people. Now governments are enlightened, and they understand that the people won't vote for them unless they do something different. And so I think we need much more of a bottom-up approach to the change. It's a lot easier to go and meet a few government officials than it is to deal with civil society. But if you look at the world we're in today, this world is totally different than it was 20 years ago in this respect. First of all, in obvious respects, we have the, the social networking and communication around the globe that we never had at that time. And today, I don't have the figure in front of me, but it's like we have tens of millions of civil society organizations which simply didn't exist in 1990 at the end of the Cold War. Uh, it was, that was in its infancy. We have new structures in the society, but we haven't learned how to really effectively utilize them. Moreover, we haven't learned how to get them to work together. Each civil society organization tends to do its own thing, but in order to get the critical mass, we'll only get that when we're working in concert. And I don't just mean all of the environmental organizations or all the organizations that want to ban nuclear weapons or landmines or all of the ones that are concerned with uh, gender equality or uh, immigration or anything. I mean all the civil society organizations because they have something in common. Apart from their specific technical agendas, they're all committed to a world that's based on human well-being rather than the system as it goes and power structures as it goes and dominance of one over the other. And that's a, to me, that's a unifying factor. And, uh, you know, we have some other great examples like what Greta Thunberg has done with, 15, she was only 15 and she made a, 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 her, the shot that was heard all around the world. That shows we're in a connected society today. We're in an awakened society today. We're an enlightened society, which we weren't 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I don't think we can afford to be discouraged by past failures. Rather, I think we should realize it's a different game today. But we've got to start playing it and not have a sense of helplessness or hopelessness because it didn't work 30 years ago. How is it going to work now? Going back to finance, uh, uh, and I skip this simply because you'll ask again, the, the, the rightly asked the same question, but I think it's important to talk about it. Uh, I'm going back to what I said about the, uh, the use of global financial resources, which 152, maybe it's 250, I, uh, I have to look at the latest figures, $250 trillion, our GDP. It's four times our GDP, global GDP. Uh, and yet so little of it is going into uh, the real economy. Uh, and I think we have to ask, is there a solution to that? There is, of course, and the solutions are not new. Uh, when money is going after making money, and especially now, that money is actually not just not going into the real economy, but it's, it's 
limiting and destabilizing the real economy. The tens of trillions of dollars that countries have to keep in reserve simply to protect them against a run on their currency, which is what happened with the East Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, for example. That money could be used for productive purposes, but the financial instability resulting from this huge speculative global market. Why is it there? Because we're no longer at the national economies. After 1990, we've become a global economy and the banks and financial institutions which were used to working in a community where they were accountable suddenly found out the whole world is their playing field and hey, nobody's in charge and there are no rules. And the only rules we want are the ones that are gonna protect our investments. And we don't want any other rules. We don't want rules that force us to take back the profits to where, we, where they were generated and pay taxes on them. We don't want anybody asking us questions. So we've got a wild west of finance uh, or what uh, Hazel Henderson uh, uh, characterizes the global casino. I think it's really the right. We've got a global casino of gambling with the future of humanity. The money is there. Do you mean there's no solution to this? Of course there is. If we say this, simple, I'm giving something simple and I don't claim it, it's not original. But if we say, look, return on an investment should be proportionate to the length of the investment. That is, the short-term investment creates instability. The short-term money that uh, I borrow from you, I can't do anything with because I know tomorrow or a week or a month later, I have to repay it. I can only use it to make some short-term money. I can't do anything to build in sustainable activity so that we can uh, enhance the value of our of human existence. And that's what's happening with the 80%. It's just fluttering back and forth here today, somewhere else tomorrow, and compelling even companies. And I don't know the figure on the companies, the Forex reserves we can easily get, but how much money the companies have to keep simply to prevent them from the tax, from the, uh, the shareholder raids, uh, if, the, if the stock goes down a little, uh, this way for a short-term gain, and then the, the, the investors are out again. We need investors in our companies that have a commitment to the business, a commitment to the people, a commitment to the community in which these businesses are. And the only way that can happen that I know is, this has to be for a longer term, the way investment used to be. And if you're gonna, it's an easy thing to, to figure out how to do it. You simply say that the tax rate capital gains on uh, in, in investment transactions is inversely proportional to the length of the investment. If it's an investment overnight or one week or one month or something, the longer it is, the lower, the, because the greater the contribution to the society. The long-term investment that we know is not going to be taken out. How can you borrow, a, a company can't uh, uh, build for the future by borrowing money overnight. It needs term loans, uh, extended loans, where they can invest and get back over time. So as I say, and there, are, uh, whether we're talking about a transaction tax like the Tobin tax, I think something that slows down the... Uh, the, the global casino. <laughs> casino, exactly, uh, exactly. And, well, uh, let me catch a breath and <laughs> yeah thank you so much you gave uh, a wide range of uh, acupuncture points uh, that we can address to uh, we can yeah address in order to uh, to solve the the issues that we currently have We didn't have that on our recording, but we actually started our conversation with uh, the most important aspect from your and my perspective, the mind shift, the mind change, the hidden dimensions of uh, the exterior world that are actually driving it. Can you say something to that? What would it take to shift the mind from uh, the current global casino toward a sustainable finance and economic system? 
oh, away from an, an away from an egocentric or even ethno ethnocentric mindset, uh, a la America First, toward mm -hmm. a world-centric or even an integrated mindset. Uh, let me say uh, first. I think it's a great question. Thank you for the question. I, let me say first. This is not the only way mind can work. And this is not the way mind has worked throughout history. We have to, unfortunately, we don't have historians of mind. Uh, we're so busy using it that we never really think about how we're using it or what it's capable of. And uh, in a simplistic way, just to make it clear, when I, we've, we've thought about these things a lot, but to try to make it clear, up until, let's say, uh, 1600 or something, became the beginning of the scientific uh, revolution, the enlightenment and all, uh, mind was looking at a whole reality. And we got focused with the birth of science on focusing all our attention on the external part of our reality and then measuring it and using telescopes and microscopes and zooming in and what we used is a faculty of mind to divide reality into smaller and smaller pieces and examine each of those pieces independent of everything else. So instead of seeing the forest, we began focusing on e each of the trees. And that, for want of a better word, is the analytic capacity of the mind, which has been thriving and has been the source of great scientific discoveries. But at the same time it's been growing knowledge, it's been creating ignorance. Because the more we specialize in order to learn more and more of the part, the more we lose contact and vision and perspective of the whole. Today in the US, and maybe the number's higher now, but a few years ago I checked, we had a more than a thousand disciplines and sub-disciplines that were being taught. And each one is a, uh, an airtight compartment where if anybody knows outside that compartment, it's because of their personal interest, not because of their formal education. And, uh, and it's much worse in other places, uh, I'm, uh, especially in the developing world, where all they want is uh, the engineering degree and no humanities at all. At least, you know, humanities, when I was in university, humanities was somewhat required for everybody. You had to have some social science, even if you were in the natural sciences or in the engineering sciences. Today, they don't learn anything outside of that. They don't even know what the UN Security Council is, uh, unless they're, uh, it's funny, but it's true. And, but that's true even in the West. Uh, 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 and uh, when we've been talking to the uh, engineers at IEEE, they admit it. Our, sci our sciences, sciences don't know anything other than their technology, and other than the method. And I don't mean there are no scientists in the world that know more. I mean, the system is not giving them. If they know it, they know it from experience, because when you get out in the world, you have to learn, or they know it from personal background. So what happened? We took this one faculty of mind and used it with such a vengeance that we conquered a certain portions of the world and showed how powerful it was. But more and more we found out that our problems are coming in exactly the areas where we haven't, where we have left out. And can we imagine now that we had a science of economics that for almost 200 years didn't know what the word ecology was? <laughs> I mean, this is true. Oh, yeah, we know what it is. It's another field, nothing to do with us. <laughs> nothing to do with us. Uh, this is a product of that, where we specialize more and more and more and cut out the reality. Whereas we all know today, I hope we all know today, there is no economy without the ecology. We see what happens. What does healthcare have to do with economics? I mean, come on, that's a completely different field. That's a bioscience and this is a social science and that's money and this is uh, uh, the human body and everything. But we see a tiny little microbe, we can't even see what it is, brings down the whole world economy because they aren't separate realities. It creates political instability. It creates migration problems, social problems, cultural problems throughout the world because the reality is one.
So we began to catch on about 100 years ago. And here, the, the technical people helped a lot in realizing, look, this division of reality by analysis is not the real picture. we got to connect things. And that was the growth of system science and cybernetics, where we tried to piece together all the parts that we have divided and see how they're interconnected. And we've made some progress, and Club of Rome has been an example of an organization that has really been pushing an, a new way of thinking that is more interconnected. But I think it goes beyond that. Whether we divide and look at everything as separate or whether we take the separate pieces and try to tie them together, still we're leaving something out. The reality is not that. Uh, we are not just the sum of our parts, as Aristotle said. We're more than the sum. We are a whole. And that's where I pick up on the word you said, integrated. Reality is one reality and everything's interconnected with each other. It's not just one thing in another in a chart that we can follow. And so I think we need, and this is what I've been working on a lot for the last 20 years or more, is how do we take the knowledge we have and create an integrated science of humanity, which understands the, the people and the social processes that express uh, whether it's in the field of economics or pol politics or technology or something else, how are they all related to each other? And how do we consciously improve it? And academically, we have brilliant people in the world, but academically, we don't have a body of knowledge that's really helping us understand the world we live in effectively. And the interconnectedness, the even interconnectedness still sounds like a system science, but I'm talking about the integrality of things. And just to, to uh, make one further, that integration is not just between all the things that are outside. What about the relationship between us as human beings, our minds, our emotions, our, our living substance with the world we live in? You know, we've been looking at the world like it's our laboratory or our, uh, uh, for a long time. We've separated ourselves from it. Now nature has come around and just, you know, made it very clear. You're either part of this or you better go to Mars, like Stephen Hawking said, because you, we're not going to, you know, you're not going to find this hospitable. We've got to integrate the subjective dimensions of our existence, our values, most importantly, our emotions, our way of thinking with the external world. Because when we do that, the world's a totally different place. It doesn't look like the world is my oyster and where can I give my next speculative return? It looks like, how can I benefit at the expense of somebody else? Everybody's benefit is, is a benefit to me. Uh, and everything I have is a product of what I've gotten from the society. I can't even speak a sentence that's my own uh, that doesn't rely on the cumulative knowledge, the development of language, words, concepts, ideas. I don't know what are my ideas because I have learned so much from the, the evolutionary thought of humanity. I can't do anything without the gifts society is given free. All of it, my education, the tools, the technology, the, the, the cell phone, which we call around the world for free, when it used to cost a dollar to a minute to call across the United States when we got our, you know, when we had our phone in the 60s. Uh, and yet, I want to say, no, I did this, it, all the profit belongs to me. What we, what we get from the society is invaluable. And we've got a system that wants to deny, oh, you want to tax me for this? You want to take away my money? Uh, as if I've done it all myself. So I think we need to reintegrate ourselves with the world we live in and with other people in the society. We've got to reintegrate our economy and our governance with uh, other dimensions of the society and the world we live in. We've got to see the whole. We've got to think that way and feel that way. And that's probably the most important thing we have to do. Because when we do that, all our thinking will change and all our actions will change because we know what's important. What's important is, is that whole reality, not just what I can get out of it by America first or uh, uh, or, or the zero sum. 
I wanted, if I could, I, I know it may not fall in sequence, but I wanted to mention one other idea that occurred to me in our recent Club of Rome meeting. A little far-fetched, especially rightly asked how we're going to implement it. But I think it's important that we think this way. Uh, right now, we've got the US, I hope that's going to change very soon, but whatever, we've got country dropping out of the system, they're going to drop out of WHO, they drop out of Paris, they drop because it's not for us, it's not for our benefit. And I think that uh, it, there should be a time coming when the global community, I think, uh, I'm not going into politics now, I promise you, but I think that, that Mr. Trump has done a great service to the world, uh, even though, uh, not maybe to America, but I think he's helped break this illusion that the world community with 7.5 billion can be dependent on the leadership of a country of 300 million uh, simply because we have in the past achieved a tremendous amount and been pioneers, especially in technology and, and business and all, uh, and in, in some areas. I think it's a service to humanity because hum the, the fate of humanity depends on humanity. It doesn't depend on any one country operationalizing that, I I've been thinking, what do we do when uh, Trump says we're going to go reactivate the, uh, uh, the fossil fuel industry, he wants to even bring back coal, and who cares about this carbon, it's all bogus uh, fake news anyway, and what does the world do about it? I think, uh, I think this is, the time is coming where and I don't know if it's an old idea or a new idea. I've not heard it, but it may be already floating around. I think the idea of a differential tax, if, for example, to start with, the European community says, look, uh, there is a tax on the pollution and the carbon and other destructive in, uh, costs on a pure humanity. And everybody's got to pay their fair share of it. We are going to, we have a consensus within what is definitely the most mature advanced thinking community in the world, uh, uh, even if there's lots of differences between it. I think the most evolved thinking is going on in Europe and the, uh, with whatever its limitations are. Uh, uh, how do we deal with the rest of the world? How do we compete? I think the first thing we have to do is say, if something's coming from America and this is their policy, uh, there's a, Nothing to do with WTO, <laughs> nothing to do, it's simply the cost to the world of continuing to act in the same way, somebody has to pay for it. And if you're not going to pay for it, we have to build it into the price of the products that you're selling uh, so that we can uh, pay for it. So I'm just, it's a far out idea because we're, our policies are still limited at the national level. How long can that last? How long in a world that's so interconnected can we keep economy or financial rules at the national level? Uh, uh, in many areas, we're transcending it already. Banking regulations, trying to cut down on the tax havens, uh, black money, tra tracing the accountability of know the customer. There are so many areas where we're meeting global. I think we have to do that. And some parts of the world have to come together and say, we are investing in protecting the world and building for the future. And those who don't, uh, we have to put a value and a cost on that. And if they're not going to spend the cost, at least if we're contributing or buying from them, it's only an isolated idea. But I think we have to be thinking along those lines as well. That's a brilliant one. And I have never heard it. So it might be very well um you might be the originator. Yeah. I, you know, it came up in, the, in our last discussion, I think it was last week. I mean, it did, the topic didn't come up, but the thought came up as I was listening to the, the wonderful uh, uh, discussion in the club. I think we need new ideas to the, like that uh, because, uh, it, because we've got to be a global community. And, you know, I, I don't look at this as odd. Humanity took how many centuries to evolve even into uh, regional communities. I mean, Europe 
you know, the nation state is only 100, 150 years old. We took centuries and centuries, millennium, to evolve uh, from the family or the tribe or the village all the way up to this idea of nation states. And it's, it's not, I mean, Britain started in the, uh, a thousand years ago, but it was very slow. You know, you know that in India, has up until 1947, one of the oldest civilizations, continuous civilizations in the world, India and China, I think, are the, the, most, the longest. India has never been fully united before, before 1947. It, when the British came to India, there were 5,000, 5,000 independent political units. They were called princely states, run by Maharajas and everything. Local government, some of them very small, like an American county, some of them bigger, some of them big enough to conquer and expand uh, into regional powers. But the country was completely fragmented, though it had the same culture, common culture with a lot of freedom for variation. Now we've come, people forget in India, I keep telling them, it's a standing miracle that since 1947, the country's been one. It's never been one before. Even under the British, it had 500 princely states, which were still autonomous, even though they were subordinate to the, the foreign policy of Britain or the, the military. So we're in a transition, and transitions like this take time. We don't have the time to wait for centuries or millennium anymore, and I don't think we need it. We have the technology and the knowledge and the education to go faster. But I don't think we should be discouraged by the backward steps. In fact, I would perversely argue that the backward steps really illustrate how foolish and impossible it is to go in the other direction. When we step back, we go back to the Great Depression. Just one step and you've gone back a hundred years. Do we really want to go back there? Is that the golden age that we want? And so I think we're learning by a blind uh, trial and error process. But uh, we have to be preparing at the same time as we're going through this painful and disheartening learning process, we have to be thinking ahead as the club is trying to do and is doing to think ahead of, of, of where, where's the solution. Because until we have really striking, attractive solutions, viable solutions, there's going to be a lot of a tendency to say the answers in the past. We'll go back to the golden age. You know, we'll go back to when things were really the way they should be. And I've studied enough American history to know that there was never such a time, uh, never such a time uh, in American history. Yeah, in the 50s when I was growing up, uh, it, was, it was the way it should be because everybody followed and conformed with everybody else. And you had to think like everybody else and behave like everybody else. And in the 60s, we revolted against that. We revolted against, no, we want to be individuals. We don't just want to be keeping up with the Joneses and looking and behaving like everybody else. We gave it up, but that created, we, but what's the, when you try to become an individual, what is it? What's the solution? What is it like? Our education doesn't teach us to be individuals. It teaches us to be doctors or computer scientists or chemists or economists or something. We, our culture doesn't help us go to the next step, individually or collectively. And I think, so whatever we do outside, short term, whatever we do financially to re-gear the system, and I'm sure we can do it much better than we have in the past, that's not going to be enough. Culture, values, are, are, are not some etherical uh, 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 thing, that, uh, some luxury when we've got everything else we need. It's the, so, it's the basis on which our society is based, our life is based. And we've got to understand it a lot more than we do now and not push it out of the curriculum, but bring it back so that when the youth are coming out, they understand the world as a whole, not just the external part, but our role in it and our relationship to it and our relationship to other people. And in that sense, I think when we look back in the future, we're going to look back on our educational system today and say, this is really primitive. This was really, this is really what people believed? They really thought you could chop up reality into thousand pieces and that was called knowledge? Uh, it, it, the way we look back five centuries on how primitive the world looked, I think from the future, 
that's how we're going to understand our great discoveries today. You mean they really thought technology was the answer to everything? Anyways. Wonderful. That's a wonderful way to end uh, our uh, interview. Thank you so much for your generosity of time and spirit and, uh, and mine. And well, uh, uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. It's useful for you, Marianne. Uh, well, I, for us, I hope. <laughs> us all. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Really Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.